Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. So today's a little bit of an experiment. This is no longer Friday or Friday 15, but now intelligent speech. If you follow me on social media, you'll probably know that I organized a conference in New York on June the 29th. Primarily of podcasters, but not solely just podcasters, whereby I had what I call thinkers, people who can not only think but can talk, um, talk about topics that they're passionate about. And it went really well and I called it Intelligent Speech. So now this podcast is now called Intelligent Speech as a neat or maybe an obvious way of marketing whenever I'm going to do a conference. And the plan is that I will do them in New York, London and San Francisco once a year. So there'll be three conferences each year under the banner of Intelligent Speech. So this is the new format and what I've decided to also do is not to always um, speak to my interviewees via the, um, the confines of the internet. So what you're going to hear in this interview is, me, is myself speaking to David Shields um, whilst we walk around Lake Merritt in, in Oakland and I think it adds another flavour, more of an, an intimate conversation. So this is my conversation with David Shields yeah. in Oakland. Oh gosh, no, this isn't Rockbridge. I, I'm no expert with the neighbourhoods of Oakland. Right. And the one thing I would say, you, when you look at a map, like Google Maps, it brings up all these names of the neighbourhoods. I've never heard anybody refer to them I know what you mean. Such. I know what you mean. Never, ever. But no, I would call this Grand Lake, is what I, I would uh-huh. call it, but I could be wrong. Right. You know, we have the lake. We're going to walk around the lake. I got you. exactly. So you said like, when we were chatting before that you were born in LA. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Um, I don't care about Los Angeles because it's a, it's a fake town. I, I care about the Bay Area because that's my adopted home. When did you actually move to the Bay Area? Let's see. I was born in LA in '56, <laughs> and uh-huh. I moved to the Bay Area in 1962. I was, you know, six years old. Uh huh. So you you can remember it then if you were six. Sure. I have a very specific memory of it. Which, and I don't know if this is a back formation based on 
my writing a, a scene from it uh-huh. in my second novel, Dead Languages, in which as we came up from L.A. to San Francisco, it was a playoff game between the L.A. Dodgers and San Francisco Giants mm-hmm. for the National League Baseball Championship. And it was some, there was a weird poetic justice to the fact that just as we were moving from L.A. to San Francisco, the Dodgers lost the playoff game to the Giants. And I was a huge Dodger fan and remained a Dodger fan the whole time I was in San Francisco. So uh, anyway, that's, that's my memory of the move. So at that point, the Giants had only just left a few years from, from New York. That's a good point. That was and, 62. You know, and the, the, the Dodgers and Giants, I think they both left in yeah. 57. So you're right. They so, were really sort of New York-based yeah, teams. Yeah. That's a good point. Being British. I'm not, I'm gonna say, I'm not saying being British. Being from anywhere else on the planet other than North America. Right. This whole idea of franchising sport and, and, and teams moving it's just an anathema I know what you mean and I can't quite still understand it I and had, it's painful because you know I'm in Seattle now and the Seattle team lost the Seattle Supersonics uh-huh. to Oklahoma City of all places and I feel like I'm still am recovering from that in a way <laughs> it's not a bad segue you know if and when we want to talk about the Lynch movie because in many ways you do my job for me. That's exactly. All, that's what I was say. <laughs> Except part, part of the proceeds. So, but, you know, anyway, Lynch came out of the book I wrote, Black Planet, about the Seattle Sonics. But uh-huh. we can talk about that sometime later. <clears throat> so what I, what I remember about our first conversation, you threw me a curveball, which is something that Leah, your publicist, actually laughed about. Uh-huh. When you said that you actually, when you were a teenager, you, you, you were a jock. And Uh I have this stereotypical view that people that write books, intellectuals, are all lean and skinny and weaklings. Intellectual, they're heavyweights, but physically, not so much. So when you said that you were, um, you know, a jock at high school, I said, I beg your pardon. Right. I, I remember that. But I mean, was I really a jock? I mean, I had two... Jewish intellectual political activist journalist parents uh-huh. my sister was you know quite the scholar and I was the sort of Jewish wannabe jock I mean <laughs> I played on the teams and I'd sit on the end of the bench reading books you know uh-huh. like I was I really this so earth shattering I mean I was you know, when your teammates were like watching the plays you're reading Nietzsche or something <laughs> basically <you>? basically <laughs> Basically, but I would say I was not a precocious intellectual. Like, I was reading how John Stuart Mill was supposedly reading Herodotus at age five in, mm-hmm. in Greek, and you know, or, or I was not that precocious kid who was writing deathless American prose at age 14. I feel like I was, you know, I was very much into sports, and then I was into uh, politics and journalism, and slowly but surely high school I started writing some bad short stories and I was it took you know then in college I was writing this rather at what, labored at what Thomas point? Hardy-esque stuff and I the point being not that I was ever such a great athlete at all mm-hmm. but rather I've always been a very obsessional person choose an obsession and go full out into it that I think is something I learned from sports and the way I just transferred a lot of that 
uh-huh. typical athletic devotion into, you might say, literary devotion. So, you're obsessed with sport and your current obsession, at least appears to be, in terms of a personality, a person to sport is Marshawn Lynch. Why is he so fascinating for you? Because on the outside, okay, he's a running back. He had a successful career. He paid for the Seahawks. He paid for his hometown team, the Raiders, and he paid for the Bills. Right. But like in the greatest, with the greatest respect to him, so what? Right. Well, right. I mean, it's not, as I like to say, it's not your father's or my father's biopic or your father's or my father's sports pick. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not really, to me, a sports movie so much as it is a movie... I don't know if you ever read that that wonderful Melville novella, Roy Field, called Bartleby the Scrivener. Is that one? When, 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 when it comes to books, just imagine I've never read anything. Oh, come on. And that's You've read safe, it all. You've read it all. That's the safest assumption to have. You've seen as a movie, maybe. But anyway, in Bartleby the Scrivener, Bartleby is a guy who copies down everything for his Wall Street boss in mm-hmm. the, the late 19th century. And Bartleby always says, no matter what the boss asks him to do, Bartleby says, I would prefer not to. No matter what, I would prefer not to. And that's, that's Marshawn Lynch. Uh-huh. You know, the, the opening epigraph of our, our film is from Herman Melville also, who has this wonderful line which he says, he says no in thunder, mm-hmm. and not even the devil can make him say yes. And that again is is Marshawn Lynch. He's an impressively he's an impressive person uh-huh. who in a capitalist yeah, racist society is trying to be true to himself. Not that he's perfect or a hero or anything like that, but he's using silence as a form of cultural protest. And that was the core of what I wanted to explore. And as to why I was interested in it, mm-hmm. there are so many reasons. One, I grew up in the Bay Area. I would spend all of my weekends as a kid going to, you know, anti-war and civil rights marches in Berkeley. Uh-huh. Second of all, I grew up in a very political family. Third of all, I was a huge Marshawn Lynch fan. And then this is sort of a weird thing, but as a kid, I had a horrible stutter. I could hardly talk. Mm-hmm. And so... To me, I was really interested, I'm really attuned to how language can be used in this transgressive or not used. way. Yeah. And so I felt like I really plugged in early to Marchand's brilliant, you might call it, anti-language. Mm-hmm. I found it very poetic and very moving, very powerful. It spoke volumes to me. And that um, I think I was really just locked in to Marchand's, you might call it, eloquent silence. Are you not over-intellectualizing somebody who basically just doesn't want to speak to the media? Marchand, how's the game today? And he just kind of nods his head. Right. Whenever somebody makes a film, writes a book about somebody, it's always a mirror and it reflects back on them. Totally. How much of this is truly Marshawn Lynch and how much of this film is actually you? I put it to you, sir, that you are <laughs> painting a much more vivid picture of Marshawn Lynch than he could ever paint of himself. Well, 
far be it for me to say what kind of paintings Marchand can and can't paint. We have sent the movie to Marchand uh-huh. and we think he's watched it at least once. And but, but that in itself is interesting, right? Because it's not as if you're making a documentary of a figure who was passed on. You know, he's still very much with us. Right. But you didn't have active participation of Marshawn whilst making this. No, that we asked him if he would participate. And as I've said, you know, slightly half seriously, that I'd have been bitterly disappointed if he had agreed <laughs> to sit down for a 12-hour interview. You, you know, the whole thesis of the film uh-huh. is that he would prefer not to. Uh-huh. And so that, you know, if he had sat down for this three-day interview, it would be like, well, how can we say that he refuses to talk if he sits down with, you know, a bunch of amateur filmmakers like us? So, mm-hmm. But I think to bring back to but, your but earlier he, point, he, am he, I just projecting... On to Marchand. And Uh I think I constantly was questioning that, especially is it a white projection, a white gaze upon a black body. Mm -hmm. There's that whole trope that one has learned to be wary of and to fight against. And, you know, all I can say is, you know, we showed it to a lot of people. We've got... And I think the reason I think... The, I don't know if you're just teasing me or if you're quite serious that the film is a total fantasy of mine. But to me, the, the reason I, I believe it's a persuasive account, not only of my psyche, but really of Marshawn's psyche, mm-hmm. is that it's an Oakland thing. Uh-huh. It's really Oakland, which is maybe my favorite part of the film is maybe the first 20 minutes, which is saturated in Oakland and Berkeley. And that we try and situate Marshawn in this deep Oakland tradition of anti-authoritarian symbolic rebellion. Mm-hmm. Everyone from Gertrude Stein's nonsense language to Jack London's socialism uh-huh. to Kurt Flood being the first Major League Baseball player to insist on free agency to Bill Russell to Gary Payton... Tupac Shakur, to to Clint Eastwood, who's a graduate of Marchand's high school. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that's just the beginning of just to Alice Walker living in the East Bay now, Maxine Hong Kingston. There's a galaxy All right, so of Oakland troublemakers whose rebellion is sometimes not overt, mm-hmm. but playfully and subversively symbolic. And it seems to me... If you watch the first 15 or 20 minutes of the film and you situate, as we try to march on within an Oakland tradition of anti-authoritarian fuck you-ness, <laughs> Marchand's silence isn't just a player who is weary of white sports writers' uh, so, okay. cliched questions. It's really a stand against all that. All right, so you have to describe and explain Oakland for the listeners who are not even aware where it is or, or what Oakland is. So what is, what is Oakland and what is Oakland to you? Or what right. has Oakland been? What has Oakland symbolized for you? Right. Well, Oakland is in the East Bay of the Bay Area. It's east of San Francisco. And, and, and you know, it's always been sort of 
what would you call it, sort of the country cousin or the ugly stepsister to San Francisco, at least mm. in the culture's eyes. Yeah. And that basically Oakland was the, you know, the sort of neglected, largely black area where the, there was UC Berkeley, a world-famous institution around the corner. There was glitzy San Francisco just across the way. And that Oakland was somehow synonymous with poverty, with crime, with white culture, dispossessing black people. And so it was always, as Gertrude Stein said, who was a very privileged member of the Oakland bourgeoisie, there's no there there, that she grew up in Oakland. Mm -hmm. To me, that's just a drastic misreading of Oakland. There is emphatically a there there in that I feel like so many great things have come out of Oakland, or at least things that change the culture. The Black Panthers came out of Oakland. The first African-American Studies Department came out of Oakland. The Hell's Angels came out of Oakland. Um, Is that a good thing? No, exactly. Like All these <laughs> things are very problematic, but they have been oddly prescient mm. or oddly um, prophetic in the sense that I guess what Oakland is good at expressing is incohate anger, you know, fury, rage, mm -hmm. class warfare. And you're right, all these things are problematic. Obviously, the Hells Angels, the Black Panthers committed certain acts of violence that wouldn't necessarily sanction everything the Panthers did, but perhaps mm -hmm. some of what they stood for. The point being that Oakland, in a way, is ground zero of what, in a way, has become sort of Black Lives Matter. To me, the film is meant to be in direct conversation with Black Lives Matter uh -huh. and that basically you know if you just listen to a post-game press conference there is this imposed narrative of hugely white press corps speaking a kind of corporate business drone uh -huh. and Marshawn Lynch who has a very musical language he just is not going to turn his ecstasy into the audience's banality but I was, I was struck when I watched the film that early Marshawn Lynch, uh, whether he's at Cal or whether he is at the Bills, right. he was very vocal. He was talking in interviews. You right. asked him a question, and it was when he had his, his incident. In uh, Buffalo, yeah. Yeah, in Buffalo, whilst he was playing him. for the Bills. Yeah. yeah, so how much of this is you know, some kind of agiprop, some real kind of, you know what, I'm in the tradition of Oakland radicals and I'm flipping the bird to, to the man and to power. And how much is this him just saying, you know what, right, I, I kind of messed up and when I tried to address it in, in the media, the media twisted my words, so I'm just not going to say anything. Right. Well, I think your point's a good one and I don't mean to take a unidirectional approach here in which I just have one reading of mm -hmm. Marshawn and that, you know, he's a complicated person. Part of him is just sort of a flat-out capitalist. Part of him is just an athlete. Part of him is a comedian, a prankster. But there is part of him that feels to me genuinely rebellious. But I think your point is a good one overall, Royfield, that basically I think that you're exaggerating slightly the degree to which at Cal... And in Buffalo, he was some hugely happy participant. Think of the very opening clip of the film is two people. He's a 
high school freshman, I believe, possibly a sophomore, mm-hmm. and he's being badgered to ask a question at this sort of symposium. And they keep on saying, you must have a question for this Oakland Raider and for the press interview. And Marshawn just thinks and thinks and thinks and finally says, I ain't got no question. And I feel like there's something in him that really is, is not going to play. You know, that whatever that you're telling him he's for, he's going to be against that in a kind of an admirably curmudgeonly way. Like, for instance, it's really important to me that his father, who left the family in a barrage of, of criminal and drug charges, mm-hmm. you know, basically abandoned Marshawn, so much so that Marshawn ended up taking his mother's last name, uh-huh. Lynch, instead of Sap. Anyway, the, his mom and his high school coach come back over and over again to this idea that to Marshawn, don't talk about it, be about it. Mm-hmm. That what you say, apparently the father was always saying, yes, Marshawn, I'll be, that we'll spend the whole weekend together playing football and going out for lunch and playing in the park. And the father would always vanish until he, he finally abandoned the family. I'm just going on what his high school coach and mom say, which is that the difference between action and verbiage is really important to him. You know, like this is amazing interview he gives Deion Sanders when he says, you know, he goes, I'm just about that action boss. Mm-hmm. And then at one point he says something like, I've never seen any time in which anything I said got me anything. There are layers after layers to Marshawn's mystery why he doesn't talk. I think your point's a good one. Let's call it 24% of them is just the guy who has, has figured out, hey, if I don't talk, I don't have to talk at all pay. He ended up paying these rather hefty fees, tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to the, the NFL for, for not following their commands and mm-hmm. so it obviously mattered to him but anyway your qualifications strike me as good but they hardly throw the football out with the bathwater. that is to say <laughs> you know yes you are making some good qualifying points but it's not like oh my god my thesis is totally wrong Marshawn is just this simple football player who doesn't like talking to the media and I David Shields have imposed some revolutionary strategy to it. I mean, there's just too much evidence in the film mm-hmm. from the silence being born in Oakland, the silence deepening in Buffalo, it going viral in Seattle, it getting deeply politicized in Oakland via the Kaepernick Neal and through Trump's election. And then it seems to me he quite consciously has handed on that legacy of resistance to a younger generation of black athletes. Okay, so you know, for whom that silence is now a kind of useful baton. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But you, uh, you've interestingly brought up Kaepernick 
in all of this and he obviously is much more of a totemic and very obvious symbol of uh, an African-American sportsman who is using his position or use let's use it in the, in the correct tense because he's no longer a sportsman right, right. Who, you, who tried to use his position as a way of highlighting injustice right you can follow Kaepernick right you know he had his very symbolic kneel and, right. and also Kaepernick is very he's actually very articulate I know he really has uh, you know he, he not only understands the issue but can articulate right. it and project that right how can I follow Marshawn Lynch I understand what you say that he stands mm-hmm. for. Tell me what I should be following. Well, I think it's an excellent question. I wonder if this is, is rude, but I think I'm going to stop and use the bathroom. Probably feel. <laughs> I don't know if your listeners will be badly you know, disappointed. Well, I think this, this might be a bathroom. This completely and utterly make the edit because exactly. it, it humanizes you, David, there in you a go. way that, that I just can't. Exactly. So um, if that is a bathroom, feel free it might to use be. it. Let's uh, see. I, I, I might just, I just go behind a tree it's, if necessary. Well, okay, well, then, you know what? What we don't need is a sound effect of that. So there why don't you, you give me your, your mic. Oh, that's true. And then I'll, I'll leave you to okay. uh, do what nature insists Join you, s- the listeners, soon. So do you want me to pick up, Roy Film, where we left off? You go. Which is, you know, the whole idea that, you know, Kaepernick is, as you say, the Neil was in direct relationship to police brutality against black motorists and black citizens in general and then interviewed about it he was able to unpack interviewers questions in a very eloquent way and so you know the Kaepernick is younger than Marshawn although not by that much so somehow he's a more visible person I would say Mm -hmm. a few years ago Marshawn was equally polarizing in the sense that as recently as I think a year ago he refused to stand for the American National Anthem in, in Mexico City during an exhibition game and instead stood for the National Anthem of Mexico. That ended up creating a whole thing with Trump weighing in and Snoop and all this stuff. But anyway, I think it's an interesting point. Somehow, what I like about... Lynch's silence, and again, you might accuse me of overreading it, but you know, basically, the point being for me, there are many ways of resisting. There is running for office, there's marching mm-hmm. in the street, there's giving speeches, there's circulating petitions, there's how do they call it, you know, computer activism or whatever, but there's also something called an assault on discourse in the sense that you know that's a rather fancy academic term but the point being to me if you just watch the footage and this comes out powerfully I think in the trailer that we cut for the film in which a series of perhaps well-meaning interviewers are asking Marshawn to you know explain the play and he just refuses to enter their language of however you want to call it corporate America business America sports talk America and for me I I don't know there's this incredible again you may accuse this of being a little too literary but there's this wonderful quote of Albert Camus who says the only way to respond to an unjust society Mm -hmm. is to be so free 
that your very existence is an act of rebellion. Hmm. Well, of course, nobody is totally free, that we're all vectors on a capitalist grid. But to me, Marshawn Lynch, even as much as or even more than Colin Kaepernick, strives to be relatively true to himself, relatively free, and that to me, his very existence feels like an act of rebellion. When I showed the film in Los Angeles about 10 days ago, a young man named, he's from Oakland actually, and he's a rapper in Oakland and he attended the screening. His name is, um, I think his name is Life Ice. Is that a, a guy? That I, I don't I'm know. not big on Oakland rap. Yeah. So. so anyway, he, he had a brilliant reading of it, which I think is so eloquent, where he said, any black Oakland kid who sees Marshawn stiff-arm the media would immediately understand and process that as them resisting a police investigation. Mm -hmm. I think that's really, and again, it's neither right nor wrong. I guess the point I'm trying to make is what you're talking about is a rather direct and literal and immediately legible resistance, a la Kaepernick. Mm -hmm. Then there is Marchand's, which seems to me to be almost handing to me a rather gorgeous mantle of freedom and flexibility to himself and to people who have the wit and nerve to follow it. I mean, do you totally reject that idea, Roy no, Phil? No, or do you, no, or no, are I, you I, just I, questioning in a good way? Uh, well, I, I don't um, know if you really found the film like <laughs> super over over-determined. Well, I, I do want to talk about your process in the film. But sure. I suppose half of my job is to prod and to of probe. Of course. No, they're, they're beautiful. Where, whether I agree or of disagree course. is no. almost immaterial. But of it's course. to try no, and just, understand your, of course. your intellectual and working process. Of course. No, there are um, people, I mean, so. in general, yeah, there are people who, you know, we've shown it to hundreds, thousands of people now, and... Um, you know, there are people who found, who find, not very many, but a few who find the film exactly what you, what you at least are, are positing, that it's whatever, a white intellectual's over-interpretation of a black athlete's silence. But I guess I would just say, you know, as Marshawn says in the film, just read it. He says, <laughs> I just read it. Well, read these 84 minutes of film. Mm -hmm. And tell me that my that my thesis is overcooked. To me, the evidence is really there. Uh -huh. Okay. So tell, tell tell us about the process. Um, it's fundamentally clip based. Well, not fundamentally. It absolutely is. Where did you go about getting the clips? How did you construct a narrative around the multiplicity of snatched bits of video? That, that you used in right. this uh, kind of very idiosyncratic film. Yeah, it is. I mean, first of all, you tell me if I go on too long on this topic because I could talk about this endlessly. Because it's well, basically you spent how long making this film? <laughs> four years. Yeah. Well, if you meant four years, you, <laughs> you, you, you can, you can talk. A few, yeah, you can have a few minutes. So, so basically, you know, it's this strategy I've been working on as a writer. You know, I'm primarily. A writer. I've written, you know, over 20 books, and of of them, about 
two-thirds of them are what I call literary collage, especially uh -huh. over the last 20 years. Almost all of the books I've written or, or co-written or collaborated on tend to fall into what I call literary collage, which is to say they tend not to have a strong, heavy-breathing narrative uh -huh. of, you know, guess what happened next, but a series like that book that we talked about, Trump, yeah. that the Trump book, it's a series of, you know, sort of a kaleidoscopic cacophony of images, and if the reader doesn't get it, it feels like chaos, but if the reader or viewer gets it, it, fe it has a wonderfully building momentum. So in a way, I feel like I've been... Is this... Uh, okay. Uh, no, I, jump I, in. Is this a, a way of making... of constructing books and films without discipline? Oh my God, you got to be kidding. Like, in a sense that nothing is harder than, than, than collage. I mean, this it's the easiest thing in the world to write uh, a linear narrative. Mm -hmm. Collages, I like to say is not a refuge for the compositionally disabled. It's an evolution <laughs> beyond narrative. It's much harder to impose the craft mm -hmm. of organization upon a work of collage than it is to simply tell a simple story. It's what I call the exfoliation of theme rather than the extrapolation of plot. In any case, this film does have a plot, though. It's really mm -hmm. the prodigal son returneth, that he was born uh -huh. in Oakland, completely made in Oakland by Oakland sensibility, that Marshawn grew up in an area called the Kill Zone, mm -hmm. north side of Oakland. So in a way, the film, even though I said it's not our father's biopic, on some level it takes him from age 14 to 33, and as you would say, so what? He's He's one more American sportsman. Mm -hmm. What distinguishes him is that he has, for especially the last 10 years, but I would argue at least partially his whole life, has really doubled and tripled down on silence as a stance. But how I actually composed it, first of all, that we had a broad narrative. Oakland to Buffalo, Buffalo to Seattle, mm -hmm. Seattle back to Oakland. It sort of forms a perfect circle of being born in a political incubator. In, in many ways, you could argue the 60s happened as deeply or more deeply in the Bay Area than anywhere on Earth. Mm -hmm. Then in Buffalo, he kind of tried to enter mainstream America and failed. Then in Seattle, with this newfound strategy, he seemed to have a way to project it to the rest of the country. And then as I've said before, through Kaepernick and Trump, it went uh, political, and, and now a younger generation is sort of trying to build on his gesture. But how do you do that kaleidoscopic montage? You know, partly through, you know, I work with about 30 people on it, including especially this amazing film editor, uh -huh. James Nugent. Marshawn said, thanks, but no thanks. I don't care to, to participate in the film. I won't stop it, but I won't participate either. So mm -hmm. that we were left with two options, either... Did he not even, like, not necessarily question your motives, but say, what is the truth you're trying to get to? You know, If you'd have said, well, you know what, we want to show you up to be some kind of anti-American black radical who is antithetical to the American state, you go, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to try and stop this type of thing. Did he just say, do whatever? Well, basically, we showed a so-called 
film treatment to Marshawn's agent, mm -hmm. who said he found it interesting, that is to say the agent found it interesting as to, to whether he showed it to Marshawn or not, I don't know. But we're still in touch with him. He just said, you know, he just sort of, to me, sort of maintained a dignified and slightly mysterious silence, which is, I won't stop it. You know, the, there's nothing that Marshawn, I don't, I don't think, can do to stop it. It's The film falls totally within fair use. Mm -hmm. But he just said, I don't want to participate. So, basically, the, we could have either killed the movie and said, okay, he said no. Let's abandon the film. At that point, we were too devoted to it, you know, too passionate about it, that we thought that we were on to something really interesting. And so, surrounded by Trump's election, Black Lives Matter, driving while black, I said, you know, what can I, as a, I hope, a involved citizen, just like I did my Trump book, to try to expl explain the insidious appeal of Trump, I said, well, what can I, I do as someone who wants to, to make a work of art, but speak politically to my time. So, because I have done... I, I think that that's an, that's an interesting link, link to make, that your last uh, work was about Trump, and then now we have Marshawn. And the one thing, I'm, I'm sure they have many more things in common, but the one thing, obviously, is what they have in common, is they're both iconoclasts, aren't they? Totally. The case of the doing their own thing, doing their own shit and whatever, right. and don't really care, or maybe don't even have the awareness of to how other people necessarily perceive it. Though I think Marshawn has much more awareness than, than Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. But it's a case of, I'm doing this, I'm in my lane, I don't care. <laughs> Is there something about that sensibility that you find um, attractive and interesting? I think that's a great connection, I must say, and that, um, you know, I think, I mean, in no way is the Trump book an ap apologia for Trump. I mean, it's, I hope, you know, a rather brutal critique of Trump and the mm -hmm. way in which Trump appeals to the worst part of all of us. You know, the basically, the last line of that book is that we have met the enemy and he is us. I think there are some interesting subterranean connections between the Trump book and the Lynch movie, kind of along the lines that you say, that in a strange way, even though I'm hugely sympathetic to Marshawn and, you know, and working actively to try to defeat Trump, in their different ways, they're both, what would you call it, destabilizers of norms. When a friend of mine read the Trump book that she said, Trump's whole shtick is that it's an assault upon discourse itself. And you, you could say that's exactly Marshawn, <laughs> right? Because he is literally assaulting discourse, saying like, you know, he just says, I'm just here so I don't get fined. Mm -hmm. It's not that different from Trump apparently yesterday telling Beto O'Rourke to just shut up. I mean, that's just not part of political discourse. I think that in their strange way... Isn't both it Trump and, and Lynch are uh -huh. both brilliant performance artists. And I think that's, that is, is my point, is that there's a method to Marshawn's madness, mm -hmm. and scarily, I think there's a method to Trump's madness. So, or, or so I argue. Is this a case of a man of letters, a man who, that man being you, articulate in the classic sense? 
verbose in the classic sense <laughs> right physician Fall, falling, falling in love with characters who reject the very the very essence of actually what you are you are somebody who thinks you are somebody who can talk so hence you write a book about Donald Trump mm -hmm. and as I said in our first interview last year you're not a Trumpite you, you, I, I don't think you've ever voted Republican but you there are there are, there are elements about Donald Trump that you like I, I, and right. definitely this is a, a love letter to Marshawn Lynch sure so I put it to you that this is what you aren't and you say to yourself I like this I wish I could be taciturn I wish I could cock a snoop without saying words I wish my sheer physicality mm -hmm. that I could be a symbol and that's the reason why you're in love with Donald Trump and Marshall oh, I'm not in love with oh you, you appreciate many things I, I mean said, I, think, I said you've never voted Trump yeah, yeah, yeah but I mean so. I feel like early on I got Trump's appeal and I felt like if I could get Trump's appeal then I could understand 50 million people voting for him because even though I would never vote for him mm -hmm. you know there's a kind of mad brilliance to Trump verbally adroit like when he says you know he's verbally adroit really? you know, he, well I mean just an example I mean he's verbal nonsense but for instance when he says famously I prefer my heroes not to be captured I mean that's just an amazing thing that violates all norms of political discourse that John McCain's a war hero that we never speak ill of either the dead or of, of war heroes and in doing that it's sort of like all bets are off I mean and that's you know, I'm above all a writer, and I'm interested in transgression and violation and, and troublemaking. There's this wonderful line of Flaubert who says, the merit of a work of art can be measured by the trouble it's caused. A pride, sort of a bad translation, but essentially that. So I think he, that you're onto something, but I think the thing I would emphasize... I'm always onto something with you. I've got your measure, sir. Well, David Shields, I like you, but I've got your measure. Oh, no. So, all oh, right. No. So, interview is over. To wrap this up. I'm just here so I don't get fined. <laughs> but wait, <laughs> let me just finish one up. point, though. Okay, go on. Oh, go no, on. you jump in, but I just thought a big thing of it for go me, on. and I, I'm sure this sounds silly now, because here I am, a 63-year-old man, and, you know, I'm relatively fluent. But as a kid, I can't emphasize how strangulating and emasculating my stutter was. I just could not talk. Mm -hmm. And so that I think there's something in me that hugely responds to troublemakers and bad boys and, um, you know, people who can command a physical stage in a way that certainly until, say, solidly into my adulthood, I couldn't even dream of. But anyway, I just wanted to get in that point. So, uh oh, you right. got my measure, Roy Phil. All right, okay. hold the phone. All right, oh, no. so oh no, if I put your film next to your book, all right, here are two icons of modern America in 2019. We have two sides of the same coin. We have money represented by Trump, but a break of discourse. He's actually not no. that that wealthy. No, but no, anyway. no. He's, uh, uh, Yes, sir. But anyway. to, what, 
to a common man standard, Donald Trump has money. Right. Is he a billionaire? No. Right. But he has money. Right. Right. But right. he came from money. Right. And we know that if he'd have just put his father's inheritance he, in the he bank, would, he'd, he'd have he'd, more money than he has now. By far. By I mean, far. That, yeah. Okay. So anyway. Okay. Right. So, but what Donald Trump is, is iconic of America in 2019. Right. And he's a breaker of norms. Right. In the sporting field, you have this black athlete who is an exemplar in one uh, in one field he's won a Super Bowl he's done four Pro Bowls um, he's had an exemplary career he is uh, arguably one of the best running backs of all time probably Hall of Fame you yeah. know not that, that that really means anything but you know probably a Hall of Fame career all right so at least on the football field yeah and he's also a breaker of norms if nothing else just the the norms around how to conduct an interview if nothing right. else if right. nothing else all right so i'm saying to you you have to pick a third american who is going to be an exemplar of modern american 2019 to wrap up our interview sir who would that third american be well i don't know if you are leading me to this and this is what you want me to say <laughs> but you know this is almost like a punchline uh -huh. but i mean i don't know if this seems megalomaniacal but it's me i mean i'm that guy like who violates norms i mean i wrote a book criticizing i mean in no way am i in anything like the public figure that marshawn lynch or mm -hmm. donald trump is but you know i'm I publish books and make films, but I don't know if this is a terribly embarrassing thing to say, but obviously that is the thing I aspire to be, whether I do a book uh -huh. that is a book that's a letter to my wife in which I explore the power dynamics of our marriage. I do a book in which I, as a left-leaning person, acknowledge Trump's insidious appeal. I do a book that is a critique of New York Times war photography. I mean, talk about a suicide mission in which a writer <laughs> does a book-length critique of front-page color war photos of the Times. I do a book called Reality Hunger, which argues yeah, for essentially a new consideration of copyright in the end of generic classification. I mean, I believe in, tr in trouble, and it is my trouble as life-giving or as galvanizing as Lynch or as dastardly as Trump? No, but I would think in my own way, I don't know if this is where you want me to go or if I fell into a... Uh, a Trumpian narcissistic trap but <laughs> basically I want to be that person and of course I can think of a million other people but every artist I admire from Petronius in ancient Rome to Sarah Manguso in 2019 in America says what you're not supposed to say you know art I believe is about saying the unsayable mm -hmm. and you know in my own work I mean I don't know if you wanted me to go there or not, or if I've just totally ended my career by saying this. But that that's There's what not came enough to people mind. that listen to this podcast or Well, they career, better so. start listening for the amount <laughs> you're paying me for this. We better get some serious listening. Well, the point being is that that's what came to my mind. Of course, if you want me to mention other people, they tend to be amazing stand-up comedians, performance artists. David Shields, I think you gave the perfect answer to a somewhat laboured question. Thank you for coming on to Intelligent Speech. The film is called? 
It's now called Marshawn Lynch, a history. It had been called Lynch, a history, but that we wanted to make sure people understood that it's about Marshawn Lynch. And if people can't see it at a, a cinema, um, how can they view your film, sir? It's going to be in what's called limited theatrical release. You know, mm -hmm. it's playing in Oakland, New York, L.A., across America, but it is available nationwide on Amazon, on iTunes, and on Vimeo, and on Canopy, and it'll be coming soon to other places as well, like Google Play. Fantastic. David Shields, thank you for coming on to Intelligent Speech. And thank, thank you, you for walking right around Lake Merritt with that me. That was and so also, Thank you for those uh, two Bellinis, which I think gave me a certain amount of feistiness. There you Man, interview. that was if amazing. If I just had like sparkling mineral I know. water, I'd have, I wouldn't have challenged I you mean, at all. I'd have it been was like excellent. A, you know, it, it gave I mean, me just about enough feistiness. To me, we killed it. I mean, that was so... <laughs> that was, I don't know if we're still on. We are. But, you know, that was a really... I mean, I just love how you, know, you challenged me on the Trump book and you challenged me on the Lynch book. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.